strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, it was a shocking story as a six-year-old shot a teacher <clears throat> in Virginia. That was shocking enough. And when more details began to come out about this, apparently there were a bunch of warning signs. No one heeded those warning signs at all. Uh, now we know that the principal of the, the district has reassigned the principal of the school because of the mishandling of this, of this. There is a big lawsuit coming from this teacher. Fortunately, she is recovering. But whenever we talk about school security and warning signs and things of that nature, we've Bring my friend Steve Hooper in. Um, he has a company called Tripwire Security Solutions. He's also a professor up at Embry-Riddle's uh, School of Security and Intelligence, 30 years plus with the FBI. He joins us now. Steve, uh, let's talk about what we know or what most of the public knows about this, that there was at least three or four warnings that were not heeded. What does this tell you? Yeah. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's the it's the same thing we hear a lot. It, this is a unique one. Uh, we have to admit a six year old. It's a little different than the high school shootings and so forth and those kinds of warning signs. But I was uh, it was concerning to me that uh, normally this kid comes to school with a parent. One of the medical assessment uh, for uh, whatever issues he had uh, or has um, required one parent to be in class with him when he came to school. On this particular day, neither parent could make it, and they sent him to school anyway, which uh, it would be if I was a school, I'd be a little concerned with that. Now, he was Um, to clarify that, though, he was this was an order because of his his behavior. Correct. That's why a parent had to be there with him yeah it was it was because of his behavior it was it was um from what i understand this was part of the uh, uh the plan they put in place was that a parent had to be with him and then they also were notified that he possibly had a gun with him mm-hmm. and when they checked his bag they said they searched his bag and there wasn't a gun well even if uh, i i just think that uh, with the back, with the background that this kid had, and the concerns they had with him, and with the fact that a parent had to be there, whether they found a gun or not, uh, you know, th- this is that ownership piece that I always talk about. Mike, someone needs to own that decision. It can't be just, well, we'll let him go this time. It's it's got to be owned. There has to be a policy, a procedure in place that uh, is is adhered to. Uh, once you get outside the policy and procedure, then that's when mistakes are made. When you, uh, I want to go back to the gun for a moment, and then I want to get to what you're saying. The gun part of this is what was interesting to me too, because right away everybody says, "How does a six-year-old get his hands on a gun?" But apparently, the parents had done a lot to get that, keep that gun away from this kid, including putting it very high up where he couldn't reach. This kid had to work really hard in order to get his hands on that firearm. Correct. Right, which tells you a lot, too, is uh, to the mental makeup of this six-year-old. There are issues there. Um, You know, were there uh, mental professionals, mental health professionals involved in this? Was the school connected to the mental health professionals? This is the network that a school has to build, again, and I I keep saying it because it's so important, is the ownership of it. Did someone own this threat at the school to the point where every day they made sure that uh, there was the network was uh, connected uh, about this kid? And one, one change in the in the approach and the plan they put in place 
should cause a change in his ability to do what he did. Like if a parent couldn't come to class and they required one parent to be in class with them, then, okay, he's not coming to class today. He's not coming to school today. That, that's the plan we have in place. When, stone, when you heard when I, and I've heard this and I've heard more and more information and I'm sure you've seen more than I have. But it's the idea that in this case and so different than others, the administration and everybody involved seem to be very aware that this kid had some very serious, violent mental health issues and was a dangerous kid, even for six years old. In that instance, with something like that, isn't it even more egregious that it almost seems as if they were being cavalier? about the threat so when it comes to schools in general they 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 want to be accommodating um i think that's one of the changes the wholesale changes in that schools have to accept this culture of security they've got to be more strict they've got to be more uh the policies have to be more about the threat than about accommodating the families uh, schools are very reticent to quote unquote label someone and you know and i get that and i have talked to many schools and we discussed that and uh they uh their their concern is that uh, the parents will get upset and they they have to deal with so many moving parts in this but in 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 this time in our in our world, uh, they just really need to get more strict and uh, have uh, stronger policies, and parents need to understand that. Steve Hooper is joining us. Um, what about now? How does this translate into your career now as a professor? Because uh, you talk about this on the show, but I know that you have a lot of students that you're teaching in security and intelligence. How does this translate into your classroom? Well, I have two courses up here, Mike. One is the emergency preparedness side of uh, of um, uh, crisis response and also the crisis management side. And so what we always say, if you don't have a good emergency uh, management plan, then you better have a good uh, crisis management plan. Um, our students come away with a, a, a deep understanding on both the corporate and the government side how emergency preparedness works, how to put together an emergency preparedness plan, contingency planning, and so forth, but they also get a deep dive into crisis management, incident command, how how to put together a crisis response plan should a crisis happen in your world. And again, whether it's corporate or in the government, in a school, um, and it's been shown to be very successful for our students out there in the uh, working world. So before I let you go, how does this translate into an Arizona school system? If we've got people that are listening now that are on a school board, superintendents, teachers, administrators at a local school, what are some lessons that they can take from what's happened in Virginia and immediately make sure that they're doing something different here at their schools? The two key pieces is our culture of security and ownership of the threat. When something, when, when you have a student whether it's a six-year-old first grader or it's a junior in high school, when you have a student that you, in your gut, feel like there's a problem there, someone needs to own it, and procedures need to be put in place and adhered to in order to address that threat. It, it can't be just, well, we'll keep an eye on them. There has to be procedures put in place to monitor that threat. Someone needs to own the threat. 
So in this case in Virginia, if that person, whoever that person is, has the ownership, they're the ones that could have and should have put their foot down and said, no, we're not following protocol without a parent here. Or when a, the threat of a gun, they take it seriously. That person has to own that and be the one that, that actually flips the switch and makes sure that the protocols are being followed. Is that what you're saying? Um, I, I'm Sadly, I think there's probably someone at that school that's saying, ooh, I knew I should never have let him come to school today. Yeah. Someone didn't put their foot down. Well, Steve, if people want to learn more about your company, especially uh, with the security side of what you and your wife do, how can they find you guys? Uh, TripwireSecuritySolutions.com is our website. And uh, my cell number is on there, uh, 480-322-5935. Or they can shoot me an email at uh, shooper at tripwiresss.com. Well, Steve, as always, I appreciate the time and the expertise, and I'll talk to you soon. See you, Mike. All right, thanks. That is Steve Hooper uh, with Tripwire Security Solutions. He's also a professor up at Embry-Riddle School of Intelligence and Security. And uh, it's interesting conversation about what should have happened in hindsight of this horrible tragedy. In a moment, uh, why is California just now talking about storing rainwater? It's an interesting question. We'll get to it coming up here in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, happy Monday. Thanks for being with the show. Uh, interesting conversation is happening now around the southwestern United States because of the extended drought, because of lack of water, what's happening at Lake Mead. We're also seeing it uh, in other big reservoirs that are falling to record low levels. A um, couple of stories, uh, both of them over at KTAR.com. One says emails reveal serious tension in Colorado River talk. Competing priorities, outsizing demands, and federal government's retreat to threaten deadlines, stymie to deal last summer on how to drastically reduce water use from the parched Colorado River. So these are from noon to August. A reclamation, uh, the, this is from the Bureau of Reclamation, gave states to reach consensus on water cuts. So I want, we're starting there on how we are fighting with other states in the desert southwest. Let's go back when you look at the Central Arizona Project and you look at Salt River Project. When you look at the, the things that we have done, and uh, I'm going to go back and give some credit again where credit's due, and that is uh, former Senator John Kyle and the hard work he did on ensuring up until this point the water rights that Arizona has. But the way it had to be negotiated, and again, I'm not an expert in this area, but I've talked with the senator a number of times about this. The way it is negotiated in order to get California to sign on, Arizona gets restricted long before California does and more severely. And what's up, what's upsetting about this is when you think about environmentalism, especially activism and environmentalism, most people think of California. They're the environmentalists. If you look at how Arizona as a whole, what we've done in order to uh, store rainwater, to keep water and retain this water for underground to be used later, we do a much better job than almost anyone else. California doesn't. So it's interesting. A couple of these headlines from California. How California could save its rainwater to protect from future droughts. This is a story that was just written this year. This was written on January 10th. 
But California wastes most of its rainwater, which simply goes down the drain. That is a story from 2019. Um, then one written on the 17th. Here's how California is trying to hold on to its rainwater. What's interesting about this is your articles going back that I was just checking through this morning, going back to 2015, where there were private entities and nonprofit organizations and experts in this saying to the state of California and its government, we need to do a better job of storing rainwater. California has had huge rains in recent weeks, and it's unfortunate the flooding that happens. I'm not wishing it on anybody, but they didn't have they don't have the ability to store that rainwater underground. They've not made the investment that Arizona has made in this regard. So a lot of that water, and that's what the stories complain about, is the water runs off into the ocean. And so they don't store that water for later. They would be in a lot better place, and so would the rest of the southwestern United States that they have signed on with if they had done a better job. Arizona, out of necessity, we live in a desert. We understand the small amount of rain we get. We, by necessity, do a really good job of how we store our rainwater. That doesn't mean there's not improvement that can be made ever, but we have done this. We have been intentional in making sure that this happens, whereas some of the neighboring states have not, especially California, for claiming to be this environmentalist haven, this activism and and environmentalism, climate change and otherwise, they have done a poor job, and now they're trying to play catch-up. But in the meantime, we are seeing that Arizona is getting hit with cuts, and it's unfair, but it's the way life is right now. Now, the good news is there could be, what, another six inches of snow up in Flagstaff. We understand that Flagstaff, I think they've got like 40 inches more snow on the ground this winter than an average winter. So they're above average in winter. We're seeing the same thing in Colorado, which means we had a rainy um, monsoon. Which was good. And so everybody said this is a good start. But what really is going to help is if we have a great winter and we have good runoff so that we start to refill some of these reservoirs. Now, there's no way that one year is going to cure a problem that has gotten as severe as it's gotten. But moving in the right direction this year, that doesn't mean we take our foot off the gas. That doesn't mean that we don't do the things that are necessary to ensure water for years to come, that we don't do the reasonable things we can do. And I know it sounds Uh, It sounds like such a small thing to some people, but you know that the biggest waste of water for Arizonans is watering your lawns too much, that it's not necessary. And I was guilty of it. Um, I didn't plant winter grass this year because the city of Phoenix was saying because of the water shortage. So I, I, I didn't. I allowed the grass to go yellow. I thought it was a little bit of what I could do. I could do my part. I shut the sprinklers off completely. But I was rolling back how often I watered my grass just because I wanted to be a little bit of a part of the solution if we all do a little bit. But we've gotten to a place where we're looking at Arizona has been water conscious for a long time. And again, that goes back to the work of, of Senator Kyle and what he did. And now that we are seeing the critical need here, we look at the water storage things we've done. And now we're looking at places we can't control and saying, maybe now we need a desal plant or we need to pump water in from maybe the Missouri River Basin or from the Mississippi. But in the end... We are doing a very good job, and we should be commending, commended for that. But California is playing catch-up. Of all of the perception in California that it is an environmental haven, it isn't. 
and they've got to they've got to do something. And hopefully, this is the lesson learned that'll get them on the road to doing that. Uh, in a moment, some good news, I believe, possibly for the real estate market here in the Valley. There was a big story that came out that said that the Valley uh, is one of four real estate markets that they Goldman Sachs believes is going to have a start uh, a sharp drop off. Experts now are pushing back on that. We're going to give you details on why it not may not be such bad news for the real estate market in Arizona. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Um, last week, we talked about a story that said there are four markets in the United States. Goldman Sachs is predicting there are four real estate markets in the United States. Southern California and San Diego, the San Jose area, Northern California, Austin, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona. They're going to see an increase in the value of property of homes, but then a dramatic decrease. And they compared it to the 2008, not saying it was going to crash, but that kind of a drop. Um, and then some local experts spoke out and said, you know, we may see some re- receding of prices. One predicted maybe 2021 levels, but nothing like a crash, just maybe a correction. Uh, local experts called the report hyperbolic, misleading, and a disservice uh, when Axios Phoenix requested comments. What they're saying is this is not this is so not the reality of what's going on and not what anybody else expects to happen this year. This is the president of the Phoenix Realtors, Butch Lieber, um, said. He said what matters, more than 100,000 Arizona homes went into foreclosure in 2008, and the market took about a decade to fully recover. Understandably, when people talk about a housing crash, people get anxious, and I think that's right. Perception is reality in many people's minds. You understand that. Perception is reality. If you're afraid, you're afraid. You know, I'm, I have an irrational fear of two things, snakes and heights, and I know they're both irrational, but they're real. They are real. I don't even looking – I don't like looking down out of a window safely in a building. I know I'm safe. It makes my stomach turn. And when I see people in high places – I saw a picture this morning of how in the 1930s they repainted the Eiffel Tower and it was guys that were lashed to the side of the tower and they were painting it. It made me sick to my stomach to see that picture. Snakes terrify me. Little snakes terrify me. Snakes that aren't po- – people say it's not poisonous. I don't care. I have an irrational fear. It's real. I'm not in any danger. But my fear is real. And when people are concerned, especially when you're talking about the biggest purchase that anybody will probably ever make, which is the purchase of a home, the average American, that's your biggest purchase, people are concerned. So here's what's happening. I'm just going to read this. The global investment firm cautioned clients that Phoenix, and I told you the four, they said they're going to see a, could see a 25% decline. Um, the median Phoenix home sale price right now was $410,000 last month, has come down significantly since May when the peak was 470000 That was according to Redfin. In context, home prices soared during the pandemic because the housing inventory couldn't keep up with the heightened demand. This was fueled by people in more expensive places like L.A. taking advantage of the work-from-home options and moving here. In addition to that, we also have to remember interest rates were, for some people, under 3%. Money was – they were giving money away. 
So now we are seeing that the demand isn't nearly as high, but this story from Axios is is kind of debunking this idea that we're going to see this dramatic drop. Um, they talked about uh, bad lending, overbuilding. They said what they're watching. The third week of January saw 1,800 new escrow transactions in the Valley, the highest in any week since June of 2022. That's over six months, according to this. They expect the numbers to continue to rise, and people have to come to terms with the higher interest rates, and they will. This is what's interesting. If you look back just a few years, everything in context, if you go back to what interest rates were – Interest rates aren't that high. And again, when the Fed raises interest rates, it doesn't automatically correlate into mortgage rates. Mortgage rates fluctuate, and we are seeing lower – as a matter of fact, a week or so ago, lower rates than we've seen since October uh, when it comes to mortgage rates. But they are higher than they were when they were at the bottom, at the floor, which we may never see again. We may never see interest rates at 3%. I'm not an expert. I'm not giving financial advice. But it does take people time to adjust. If you talk to people a little bit older than I am, and I talk to them often, that were buying homes in the late 70s, early 80s, many people buying their first home, where you were seeing double-digit interest rates on a mortgage, 13 15%. So those people that were doing that then, are, that's, what, that's what credit card interest rates are now. So I'm glad that Axios did their homework on this because for anybody that lives here, we still feel that there's a housing shortage. We are still seeing homes sell quickly. And what's more important than anything else is that we want accurate information. And again, I will never give financial advice. But looking at some of this data and being concerned about a recession, I'm very concerned about that as well. But we also understand that Arizona's economy is braced very well to withstand a recession. We'll talk a little bit later on in the show of what a recession might look like in Arizona compared to other parts of the country. Um, nationally speaking, people are we have a, a high, very high number of people that are delinquent in their car loans. But Arizona's economy, because our job market remains strong and the wages remain fairly high, people in Arizona seem to be in a much better place. And we are, are probably going to stay that way better than other parts of the country. So when it comes to home values, we know we are still a destination. With so many companies coming to Arizona and people, this is now a place where people are coming to work and not a place just to come and retire, we are seeing that we still have a crisis in this. We've had the people on from Build Your Future Arizona a couple of times. The end of last week, we had someone on talking about Build Your Future Arizona, which is trying to entice young people looking for their careers into the construction market and other adults that are looking to change careers to change into the construction world, whether you're actually working on construction sites as, as a craftsman or a craftswoman, or you are someone that's in the offices working an estimator or a project manager, there are going to be over 200,000 jobs needed in construction over the next few years. That's the reality of what's happening here in Arizona. We can't build homes fast enough to fill the need. So the idea, and this is again, the, what I see when I look and it's being backed up in this Axios story is that we're in a good place in Arizona. That doesn't mean we're not going to see the receding prices when the market cools down, but look at where the prices went year over year for a couple of years in Arizona. We were making astronomical gains in in a home value. And so it had to cool off somewhere. But the idea that we're going back to 08 and crashing, they're debunking this and saying this is just, it's not the reality. And some people are upset because it's so scary to some that you don't want to scare people away from making a decision. You want them to be informed when they make a decision.
so in a moment, um, we're going to go back to schools. School districts in Arizona are still hiring. We're going to talk about schools and what they're doing in order to entice people. How are some school districts faring well when it comes to budgets and others say that they are being in big, big trouble? We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. So here in the state of Arizona, we have uh, expanded school choice dramatically with the expansion of the ESA program. Now, the ESA program used to be called, or it was always called, the Empowerment Scholarship Accounts. Those that what ESAs were. They've now been expanded. People are calling them Education Savings Accounts. I don't care what you call them. The expansion of the ESA program, in my humble opinion, gives the power back to the parents. They control the purse strings and a, a big chunk of it. It's about a $7,000, um, uh, uh, I guess, scholarship is the wrong word, but it's $7,000 from education of tax dollars that are attached to the child that the parent can use in any way they see fit to further their child's education. Originally in the program, in Arizona, the way it was is the ESAs were for special needs students, but the principle remains the same, which is a parent of a special need child it probably knows a lot more what the specific needs of their child is and what the specific needs and how they are met for that child and how they're best met. Would they be better at knowing that as well? So giving them the flexibility and the ability to take these scholarships, and that was what was called the Empowerment Scholarship Account, and then educate their child with that money any way they see fit is what the ESA started out as. And, I, and the people that expanded it in Arizona said, why shouldn't all parents have this available? to them if they want it. If you like your child in the district school they are in, then great. Everything stays the same. But if you feel stuck for any reason, this isn't the right fit for your child, whatever it is, you can move them. We now know that the governor of Arizona is going to try to scale this back dramatically. But what's interesting is other states are now doing it. In Utah, uh, the governor signed a school choice piece of legislation on Saturday providing family funds to send their children to private schools. House Bill 215 funding for teacher salaries and optional education opportunities, OEO, uh, sponsored by a Republican, will provide eligible families $8,000 scholarships for more education options and give licensed educators a $6,000 pay raise. So that they're expanding school choice. Uh, we are hearing that this is what they are clamoring for. Um, former President Trump and talking about his 2024 campaign for president. One of the things he's been talking about at rallies and recently put out a video, I think, on Thursday. But he spoke at a rally and said one of the things he wants to do is expand school choice for parents. Um and it's interesting. If you look around the districts in Arizona, this is a, a story it says many Arizona schools are hiring. Here's what to know. The Washington Unified School District, which serves uh, North Central Phoenix and East Glendale, held a job fair last week. Great Hearts Academy, a charter school, has uh, 300 open positions. Um, the Arizona Department of Education is holding its own job fair. So we have a great need for educators. And uh, ultimately, the argument comes down to this money. That's what people are arguing about. What I find interesting is the one side of this argument says, and I'm not trying to be insulting, but one side of this argument says, you know, um, 
Teachers are frustrated because they don't have money in the classroom. They have to buy their own supplies. This is, and I imagine that is frustrating. We have been arguing for as long as I have been paying attention to education. We have been arguing about dollars in the classroom. Both political parties keep saying that they're going to do it, and it never happens no matter how much more money we spend. You know what's funny is that when the former governor and the legislature a few years ago, I believe it was 2018, agreed to give a fund a 20% raise over three years for teachers, which happened. The money went into the budgets of all the school districts to do that. There are some school districts that did not, in fact, give those that full 20% to teachers. Why? Because the school districts are autonomous. They can do whatever they want. There is no oversight in these areas. What are they spending the money on? That should be a question all parents ask. But the expansion of this education freedom, and you look at the desire for parents that want more school choice, there is a reason why charter schools are po- are popular. And I go over all of these, the micro schools and homeschooling, private schools. There's a reason why they're popular. When the public school system is failing, parents look for other options. Well, now they have the financial ability in many of these classrooms or in many of these Families have the financial ability to didn't that they didn't have before. So I've been arguing for a few days with people on uh, social media, and they all point to rich people. These are rich people that are taking advantage. First of all, the tax dollars belong to rich people as much as they do working class or poor people. Period. End of story. It's their tax dollars. They're entitled to it, number one. But what about all of those working class families who now have options that would not have before? They don't want to pay attention to that, and it's one of the reasons why this is becoming a bipartisan effort, that it's giving kids the opportunity in working class uniforms, uniforms districts that would never have the opportunity to, ha- to do this any other place, any other place. That they have an opportunity at school choice. This isn't about teachers um, and being negative toward teachers. I would say that it's not just the money part of it for teachers. It is. Money is an issue. Funding is an issue. It's not the issue. The politics in schools have gotten out of control. And there are teachers that just want to teach their subject. Isn't this interesting? And I, I, I don't know that I could do it. But if you're someone who says, I want to be a teacher, if you're a math teacher, you have to love math. If you're a history teacher, whatever, you know, whatever you're teaching, if you're an English teacher, you have to love that study. You want to teach the subject that you're trained for, that you went to school for. All of the other things that are being required politically, all of the other political statements that are happening in schools and activities and everything else, they're driving some of those teachers out of those classrooms. There is a reason why a lot of teachers teach at private schools when in some cases private schools actually pay less than the public school system. There's a reason for that. And so it's not just money, although that's part of it. You have to acknowledge that there's also the politics of this that teachers are tired of. They don't get paid enough. Classroom sizes are too big. They're overloaded with work. And on top of that, all of the politics that runs around them constantly. And that's part of what needs to get out of the school systems. That's just my humble opinion. But nobody seems to want to change. They don't want to make the financial changes. And they're willing to say that it's just the money that causes these failing schools to continue to fail. And I don't believe it is just money. It's more than that. Matter of fact, next hour, we're going to let you hear a little bit more from my interview with Senator Jake Hoffman, who is the chairman.
chairman of the Freedom Caucus in both houses of the legislature, um, and he is talking about them not signing on to this AEL uh, it's, um, override until they get what they're looking for. We'll tell you here at next hour. Please stick around for that.